Aaron already mentioned that Sunday school starts in two weeks, and I just want to personally give a plug before the teaching for the adult version of the Sunday school class that starts on the 8th. We're doing something we've never done before. We're having a welcome class. It's six weeks long. This is our very untried beta version. So if you're new, and if you're wondering if Lion and Lamb is a potential for your future church home, this is a great opportunity. Six weeks, you'll basically meet the folks and the faces who have areas of responsibility. Um, we'll get to know you a little bit, and you'll get to know us, too. If Lion Lamb is already your home, and you say you know all that already, uh, you'll probably learn something new, I would suspect. But also, we'd really like your feedback. This is something we do in the future. And so we'll have some weekly handouts, and we'd like some weekly feedback as well. So August 8th, if you were considering the Adult Sunday School Hour, I would strongly encourage you to come old or new and give us your feedback. You know, today's an exception. It sort of cooled down. The, the clouds came in. The rains came in. It's a little cooler than it's been. I find every summer, without fail, when it gets hot and sticky here, that my mind turns to Colorado and to the Rockies and the place that I would rather be if I had my druthers cup of hot Kansas summer. So, no wonder then that my opening illustration has to do with the mountains, so forgive me that. But let's say that you're like me, it's the hot, sultry Kansas summer, and you're thinking about getting away, and a friend invites you to go with them to the Rocky Mountains. And this is the deal. The trip, they're going to pay for everything. All you have to do is come along. You're just along for the ride. Everything's taken care of. Everything's paid for. So for me, this is a no-brainer. Sign me up. I'm there. And you and your friend get out there. You take the drive. You get there. You're having a good time, maybe a day or two, hanging out, you know, checking out the scenery. And your friend invites you to take a walk. Stan knows all about this. Invites you to take a walk. Uh, you know, Tolkien and his friends uh, in England, they walked a lot. And uh, Tolkien liked to walk, but, or excuse me, Lewis liked to walk, trudgers. Lewis, the guy, sorry, I'm getting this totally backwards. Who is who? Lewis liked to trudge. He liked to hike. And Tolkien, he liked to walk. And I'm the walker. I, I like to get someplace, but I want to walk along the way. Well, your friend invites you to a walk. And you say, sure, that sounds like a good idea. And the walk ends up being Long's Peak. You know, 14,259 feet, I believe, high. So he wakes you up early in the morning. It's still dark. He gets you out on the road. You get to the trailhead. It's seven and a half miles up to the peak. You've got to start early so you get there before the, the uh, afternoon lightning comes in. And, you know, you can imagine, your friend's in shape and you're not, so as you're making this walk up Long's Peak, uh, your friend's going ahead, you're getting lost behind, your friend becomes worried, concerns for you. So he goes back and he walks behind you. So he can encourage you that way, you're not going to get lost, he knows right where you're at. You make it to the top of the peak, you enjoy the views, it is great. Horizon to horizon, life's good. You go back down, you eat your s'mores and put your feet up, etc., finish out your break, and come home. Now, on one hand, if I ask you, what did that trip cost you? Financially, it cost you nothing. You paid nothing for the trip. You got to the mountains, you enjoyed the scenery, it was a great time, etc., etc. The trip cost you, on one hand, nothing, not a thing. On the other hand, what did the walk, what did the hike require of you? Well, it required everything of you. It required everything you could muster, and maybe then some. So the trip was free, but the hike or the walk sort of cost you everything. 
And that's the opening analogy for Genesis 17, where we'll be parking this morning. It's about a trip to paradise on one hand that costs nothing, but requires everything we can muster. We'd been in Genesis before, kind of a five or six week break or so, and we've seen covenants and promises and commands from God to Abram. We've seen Abram and his wife Sarai using Hagar, their maid, to get a child trying to fulfill God's promise, found out that didn't work, and that lands us this morning in Genesis 17. God's going to make another covenant with Abram this morning. It takes in elements of promises and covenants he's already made, and it expands them a little bit. We're going to read most of the chapter. I'm going to leave out verses 15 through 21. The ones directing uh, directly with Sarah, we'll look at those next time. So hang with me. This will take a little bit of time to read through. But Genesis 17 says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, which means either exalted father or from an exalted patronage, from an exalted family line. But now your name shall be Abraham, which means father of nations or multitudes. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants, a servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. In other words, Abram and everyone in his household under his authority, every male is to be under this covenant through circumcision. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In other words, God says, be cut, circumcision, or be cut off. Now, skipping verses 15 through 21, head down to verse 22. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, 
and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son, all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is a long passage, and let me just reiterate briefly the points, okay? God shows up. He appears to Abram again. Abram fears down in fear and awe and listens to what God says. And God says this, I'm going to promise to make you nations and kings. I'm going to change your name to reflect the fact that now you'll be the father not of a single nation, but of multitudes of nations. I'll be in a close personal relationship with you and your descendants, and I'm going to give you and your children all the land of Canaan. And we won't get get into this this morning, but there's an element we've talked about before in Genesis. You see God um, regularly dropping themes throughout the Scripture, which sort of has a way of reminding us these are all tied together. God's in charge of things from the beginning, in the middle, and to the end. And so here's a reminder Abraham and Sarai, living in the land of promise, commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound familiar? A little bit like Genesis, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, in the land of promise, told to be fruitful and multiply. And and just basically the thought is, God's still about His program. You know, sin has interrupted things, but God's still about bringing about His goodwill on the earth. We're going to look at four points this morning. Uh, The first is this, walk before me and be blameless, there in verse 1. Walk before me and be blameless. You know, we could have just started at verse 1 and just hung our hat there all morning, couldn't we? Walk before me and be blameless. What does that mean and what does that look like for us? Uh, Be blameless has the thought of have integrity before God. And sort of the picture is, just like you hiking up Long's Peak, the picture is you're walking with God and He's behind you. And so there's the thought that God sees everything that's going on in your life. He sees you even if you don't see Him. And he says we're to walk, Abraham's to walk before God in a way that reflects the fact that God is with him, that he's in this relationship with him. And that requires something of him. And here the term is blameless. It has the sense of integrity. I'm what I should be. I'm doing the things I should be doing. I'm reflecting the fact that I'm in relationship with this holy God. So walk before me and be blameless, God says to Abraham. So for Abraham, from this point on, if he hadn't earlier, everything he does, all his thoughts, all the arenas of his life, he knows that he's supposed to devote himself to God in such a way that God approves of what he's doing, that he's blameless, that God can't say, Abraham, you're out of line in this. Now in saying this, it doesn't mean that Abraham will never sin again for sure. God's not saying that. You know, if you look in the New Testament on the qualifications for elders, it says that they're to be blameless. And it simply means there's no open charge against which they need to be brought to bear. And that's the same thing here. God says, Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Now, a little later, we'll look at the, the actual the act of circumcision itself. But there's a sense in which this is a, a, a headline of this passage And it's sort of the bottom line, and everything else falls under it. And there's a sense in which God is saying, we're going to talk about a physical circumcision later, but generally this means all of your life should be, in a sense, circumcised before me. 
You should live a circumcised life, God says, before me. Your life should reflect the fact that you're in a covenant relationship with me, a circumcised life. Later, you remember God says this is going to be a covenant for Abraham and his descendants. Later, when his descendants get the law of Moses, if you read Leviticus 19.2, God says something very similar to them in that generation. And he says there, I am the Lord your God, be holy because I'm holy. It's the same thought, walk before me in a blameless way. Here in Genesis 17, Leviticus 19 I'm holy, you be holy. You're in relationship with me. Your life is in sync with mine. You're connected to me. I'm holy, you be holy. Jews under the law of Moses. But you know, if you read the New Testament, this same phrase, this quote out of Leviticus comes up again in 1 Peter. When Peter addresses Christians like you and me, and he quotes Leviticus 19, and he says, be holy because I'm holy. There's a sense in which the same thing is being said to us today that was said to the Jews under the law that was said to Abram in Genesis 17 here, which is there's a requirement for those of us who are in relationship with the living God. And it's that we live our life in a fearful, reverent, awe-filled, appropriate sense of who it is we're in relationship with. And we don't take this lightly. This is supposed to affect every area of our life. Walk before me. I'm seeing everything you do. There's a sense in which this should inspire some fear, some healthy fear. I see everything you're doing. You can't get away with anything. But also there's a sense of protection and care and concern there. If you read later in Isaiah, I believe it's 30, maybe 32, God tells the Jews in Isaiah's day, hey, there's going to come a day when you'll see the teacher with a capital T and you'll hear his voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you start to turn to the left or turn to the right. Yahweh, Israel's teacher, would be walking behind them and his voice would be there to say, hey, you're getting off to the left or to the right. So right at the opening, when God appears to Abram, he says, and it encapsulates basically everything that's going to come afterwards, walk before me and be blameless. Live a circumcised life. Live a life that appropriately shows respect and honor for me and shows that you're in relationship with me. There's a huge high call here. Walk before me and be blameless. Let me add here too. Um, Christians routinely get confused between what the scripture talks about in terms of salvation and in terms of discipleship. I just want to point out briefly, this call to Abram has nothing to do with his eternal standing before God. Because in Genesis 15, 6, we've already been told And the New Testament takes that verse and uses it to explain to us over and over again that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ plus nothing. Abraham was declared to be in right standing with God in Genesis 15, 6 when he believed God. This has nothing to do with his eternal state and standing before God. He's saved. And as a saved person, he's called to live up to this high calling he's got now. So when you hear this, Don't hear salvation, hear discipleship and a response to the salvation we already have through Christ. Back to the opening illustration, the trip is paid for. We don't foot any of this bill. We couldn't foot any of the bill related to our own salvation, the redemption from our sins. So this is not about salvation. This is about discipleship. This is about a response 
to the relationship we're now in with God through faith. The covenant, second point here, the covenant affirms promises and covenants already made, and then it brings in an additional personal element. So let me just rehearse for you very briefly. If you remember, there's almost nothing new in Genesis 17 about what God has already promised or made a covenant with Abraham over. Genesis 12, God's already promised Abram children. He said, I'll make you a great nation. Genesis 13, he's already promised him the land. He's already promised him children as numerous as the dust of the earth. And Genesis 15, he's already made another covenant by which he's guaranteed Abram, if you have any questions about the land, it's yours, it's yours and your kids, it's yours forever by covenant, unconditional, unilateral covenant by God. So that's already there. And you see these things reiterated, verse 2, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly, same promise, reiterated. You're going to become the father of a multitude of nations. This is more than Abram had been promised before. This is more than Genesis 12. Now, you'll not be a single nation. You'll be many nations. So that's what he'd been promised, elevated. And then in verse uh, 8, I'll give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojourning. Again, that's from Genesis 15. What he adds here, though, is verse 7 and 8, I will be God to you and to your descendants after you. And verse 8, and I will be their God. Genesis 17 in this covenant brings in a very personal element I'm not going to be sort of distant and and far removed. I'm going to be your God. You're going to know me personally, and your descendants are going to know me personally. I'm going to be in a personal relationship with you by virtue of this covenant. And that was new, personal. I'm your God. I'll be your descendants, God. The third point is this. This covenant that Abraham and his descendants carry the sign of the covenant in their own bodies Verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 11, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. This covenant is carried physically in the bodies of all of Abram's male heirs. Now think back to Genesis 15. You remember there we said that when the scripture says, your translation probably says something like make a covenant. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And that the Hebrew actually means to cut a covenant. And so we saw that that meant when Abram took those animals God commanded him to, he slayed them. He cut their carcasses into halves, into pieces. And then when God made that unilateral covenant, God appeared as an oven, smoke and fire, and he passed between the pieces of the covenant. That was cutting the covenant. But that was outside of Abraham. That was the animal pieces. But in Genesis 17, God cuts the covenant into Abraham's own body. This gets very personal, doesn't it? It's not an animal outside of me. It's not some object I just look and see what happens to it. When this covenant gets made, it's cut into Abraham's own skin, into his body. This changes changes everything. This makes it very personal. This isn't removed. This isn't something separate from me. The covenant now is cut into my own body. It's a part of me. The reminder of this relationship I now have with God, it's cut into my very skin, into my very person. This changes everything. Not detached, not separated, not those animals. It's cut into me. Of course, this has repercussions, as I'm sure you can imagine, when the new covenant gets made, whose body is that covenant cut from? 
cut into. Same thought there. So this cutting is done in Abraham's own body. And think, I've got four points that I want to bring out about this. This very personal bodily circumcision. You know, if I say, Lord, why does cutting the skin off a man's penis say anything spiritual? I, I don't get it. No, where is this initially? And by the way, circumcision was not unique to the Jews. Uh, lots of the cultures in their day practiced circumcision. What was unique was using circumcision as a sign of the covenant and doing it at birth. The Egyptians practiced circumcision. Uh, many of the cultures around the Jews of the day did. So circumcision as an idea or concept was not new. But this is a sign of the covenant was. But, but extrapolate or think a little bit about the repercussions of this. The first one I think of is this. You remember in Abram's life, his only desire is for a son. It's for a male heir. You remember? All he's after. God says, hey, I'll give you all this good stuff. And he just keeps coming back and saying, Lord, I just want a son. I just want an heir. That's all I'm after. He's got wealth. He's got honor. He's got fame. And he still says the same thing. I just want a son. So Abraham, uncircumcised Abraham, has had sex with his wife Sarai for decades, literally, right? And never got a son. After his circumcision, when he has sex with Sarah, and by the way, this is about 100 years old, and what's Sarah, 90? They're still having sex. This is the way the promise is going to be fulfilled. When they have sex now, Abraham is uncircumcised, and what's he going to get? He's going to get a son. In other words, God's telling him that the son that he's always wanted couldn't be produced by his own doing and his own efforts. But it's only after he's entered into this covenant with God that God's going to give him supernaturally. You remember the New Testament says their bodies were as good as dead as far as childbearing. Supernaturally now, when Abraham has sex with Sarah, his wife, even in their old age, circumcision is going to remind him the child that we have is from God's doing. It's not from what we could do. We've been at this for decades. We never had a child. God enters into our life. He creates a circumcision. A uh, covenant with us marked by circumcision and now we get our son and circumcision would be a reminder to Abram that this son was God's doing Abraham belonged to God and this son belonged to God this son was a supernatural gift from God after Abraham was circumcised Abraham's descendants after him they're going to think the same thing you remember Every time they circumcised Jewish male, slept with his wife and had children, it was a reminder. I'm circumcised. I belong to God. The fruit of my union with my wife as a circumcised Jewish male, they belong to God too. So God ties circumcision and the sign of this covenant with the generations that would follow. It's very personal and it's personal to every one of these families. A second point is this. You remember if you go back to Genesis 3, after the fall, God promised Adam and Eve that they would one day have an heir, a son, and he would crush the serpent's head, the serpent who had brought about through temptation, sin and death in the garden. God said one day the seed of the woman is going to be born. He's going to crush the serpent's head. He's going to bring redemption and salvation to Adam's heirs. And if you follow the line, the story of Genesis, guys, primarily is just following the links in the chain to follow God's promise to provide this promised son, this Savior. 
what Israel will later call a Messiah. So Cain kills Abel. Abel can't be in the line of promise, but Seth replaces him, and Seth is a link in the chain of promise. And you go through the generations, and that's, that's why they're there. The generations that are listed in Genesis are to show us God's promise in each generation. There's a link in the chain working towards the Messiah. And we see Noah's a link in the chain, of course. And then of his three sons, only one, Shem, is a link in the chain. Down to Abram, Abraham becomes a link in the chain. And so for all these Jewish families and all these Jewish men, to be circumcised was also a reminder that it was through a circumcised relationship, covenant relationship with God, that God would eventually bring about his promise to bring a Savior into the world and save Abram's heirs and Adam's heirs. Circumcision was another reminder that the Savior, the Messiah, would be supernaturally given, that mankind and what he could do could not bring about the coming of the Messiah. It would be God's doing, seen in this um, uh, circumcision that reminds us, I'm God's, I can't have children on my own, God's given us the children, God will eventually give us the Messiah as well. Third point on circumcision specifically too, ask yourself this, who could see the sign of the circumcision? Who could see this? It's a sign, it's a mark that they're in a covenant with God, but who could see it? Uh, Abraham could see the sign of, of this covenant, right? And every time he saw his private parts, he'd be reminded, I belong to God, and my children belong to God. His wife could see the sign of the covenant, right? She'd know, yeah, my husband, our family's in relationship with God, and our children are called to that same relationship. Uh, when they have a little fella and he turns eight days old, whichever the family and the community of faith gathered around and saw that circumcision, they would see the, the mark of the covenant, would they? The sign of the covenant, they'd see it too. And every Jewish man who had sex with his Jewish wife would see that sign of the covenant, that circumcision. But if you weren't on that intimate terms with a Jewish man, could you see the mark of the covenant, the sign of the covenant? You couldn't see it. It would not be visible. So if you saw that other person, there'd be no way you could see the sign of the covenant. But what could you see? You could see the way they lived their life, right? So you could go back to verse 1. You could see if they lived their life called out in this relationship to God. If they walked before God with integrity and blamelessly. In other words, the mark of the covenant for them as far as outsiders was concerned, would not be circumcision itself. It would be a circumcised life. So if Abraham had the mark of circumcision, but he lived like everyone around him, who would know that he was in a covenant relationship with God? No one would know. Because they can't see the mark. They can't see the mark of the covenant. All they can see is how he lives his life. So for them to know that Abraham was in a covenant relationship with God, Abraham would have to live a circumcised life. A circumcised life. The fourth thing is this. When Abraham is told by God, I'm going to make this covenant with you, and this is what's required of you, Abraham's response is... Uh, very, very helpful. As soon as God goes up, Abraham's response is immediate and it's total. 
You know, the repetition in these passages gets a little old, but it's all there to make a point. So in verse 23, 26, and 27, Abraham took Ishmael, all his servants, every male in the household. He circumcised every one of them that very day. So God's called Abraham into this elevated covenant relationship with him, and Abraham's immediate response is obedience. It's immediate, and it's total. This is, this is so rare today to see people with this kind of fear towards God, seen when he bows down, and then respect for God and following up immediately in this call to the covenant in obedience by doing it immediately and fully. I'm making a lot about Abram's uh, response to God because I think it's there in the passage and I think we need to, but let me give you the flip side of this as well. Thirteen times in this chapter, God says, I will or I have. So, I will establish, I will multiply, I will make you. Eight times related to Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. God says, I will, I will, I will. The others are related to Ishmael because God says, hey, bless. Abraham says, please bless Ishmael too. God says, I will there too. But 13 times in this chapter, you'll read the phrase, I will or I have. And the point of that is this. We can, in a sense, take ourselves too seriously sometimes in the sense that we think we're capable of more than God knows we are. And God knew Abraham was. And at the end of the day, this covenant and these future generations and these children depended more on God than they did on Abraham. Because a God who can't lie said over and over and over again, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he tells Abraham, and this is what I want you to do. But recognize in the text itself, God makes sure Abraham knows and we know the onus to discharge this covenant is not on Abraham. Abraham's got a minor role. The responsibility for the covenant lies primarily on God himself. I will do these things, God says. Ladies, what do you say to a group of women on application for circumcision? Where do you go with this? (laughs) Not very far, huh? There's no circumcision today for us in a covenant relationship with God, is there? No physical circumcision. Now, people still get circumcised. Guys do routinely. This is still a common practice. But it's not because it's tied to the covenant relationship with God. If you're a Christian, though, if you've entered a new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ, we don't have a circumcision, but we have something similar to that, don't we? It's not quite the same. There are some distinctions that I won't go into this morning. But if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've entered a new covenant because Jesus said he was making a new covenant cut into his own body on the cross when his blood was poured out, his death on the cross instituted a new covenant. And so when we believe in him, we are entering, in fact, what he called a new covenant, or what Hebrews calls a better covenant. And he told those that followed him, he said in Matthew 28, when you go out and you proclaim my truth, who I am and what I've done, you're to baptize those who believe. And baptism will be the sign and the symbol to the community these folks are in that they are now in a covenant relationship with God through faith in Christ. Baptism is the sign of that covenant, as it were. I am amazed, and I I, I confess I don't get this, but Americans have an aversion to baptism. And I'm amazed at how many people have known the Lord for years and have never been baptized. This is not a good beginning. This is not a good beginning. 
When Abraham's called into that covenant relationship, he obeys God immediately and fully. And if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, to be baptized is the first thing you should do. Not because it saves you, not because it makes you holy, Christ makes us holy, but baptism, like Abraham being circumcised, is our step of obedience to say, Lord, I recognize I'm in a new relationship with you. And while my salvation was free, that walk with you is costly. It requires me to walk up to who you are, to live up to this high calling. And the first step should be obedience in baptism. We happen to have a baptism scheduled in two weeks. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're living and walking under that new covenant, I would encourage you, I would admonish you, I would exhort you, be baptized. There are baptismal forms. They're probably on the table in the hall. Grab one, fill it out, get with one of the leaders by next Sunday. Let us go over that with you. But this, is, this should be a, a no-brainer. This should be a, not, a, not a question. If you've trusted Christ, you need to be baptized. One of the things that strikes me routinely about Abraham is that God, uh, his role as father was a big deal. If you're a father today, if you have kids, and there's a lot of fathers, there's a lot of families in here. If you're a father of children, this example of Abraham, that he's called to transfer the covenant to his children after him, not just to his first child, but to generations to come, this is a great example for us as dads. Guys, as fathers... We love our wives. That's our first call. Our wives are with us as long as we're alive. Our kids are here for a while and then gone. But after that, your first call is to transmit the faith to your children. Now, Abram could bring his children under the covenant by circumcising the the little boys. We don't do that today. And we cannot make our children believe. We can't give them faith. The Holy Spirit does that. But God uses us as dads. To show them the truth and who God is and what He's called us to. And if you were a Jew under the law of Moses, you were told to talk about these things with your kids when you stand, when you sit, when you rise up, when you're at home, when you're traveling in the way. And guys, as Christian fathers, we should be doing no less than Abraham was or than a Jew under the law was. We should be with our kids in the Scriptures, telling them what's true, pointing out Christ, inviting them to faith, in Jesus and to live under that new covenant and then enjoining them to live up to that new covenant. But if you're a dad, if you're a parent with kids that you're training today, that's your first and your primary responsibility. It's to do like Abraham did, to get your kids in the covenant, to bring those future generations in with you. It's a huge, huge call. The third thing this is this too. People can't see, anybody that sees you, they don't know if you're circumcised, if you're a guy. They don't know if you're baptized, if you're a Christian. They can't see that. And so if people are going to know that you're in relationship with God through faith in Christ, if you're living under this new covenant, it's going to have to be the way you live your life. It's going to have to be what they can see and the words you speak. It is both. It is the words that we speak. Oftentimes Christians are accused of hypocrisy and there's lots of room, lots of valid reasons why that's often true. But that doesn't mean Christians should not continue to speak those things that are true. We're still called to that, to proclaim the truth or to proclaim the excellencies of the ones we've been called into relationship with. And then we should follow it up by doing what Abraham did, which is to walk before God blamelessly, 
with integrity. We need to walk up, the New Testament says, to the high calling we have in Christ. So people won't know if you're in the covenant except by the way you live your life before them. Live your life before God. He's behind you, as it were. In fact, for Christians, He's in us and with us. And then also live in a way that those who observe your life can see that you live in a covenant relationship with this God. Colossians 2, verse 11 says, In Him, in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. If you've trusted Christ spiritually, Paul says, you've been circumcised. And the rest of Colossians is this call to live in light of that spiritual reality. Live as one who's been circumcised and set apart to God. Salvation's absolutely free. We bring nothing to that plate, nothing to that table. Christ died for our sins. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. Having been saved, we're called up to this high calling to walk with integrity blamelessly before God and Christ our Savior. And it's worth it. You know, if you got to the top of Long's Peak, your feet would hurt, you'd probably be tired and hungry. There'd be some pains. It would cost you to get there. But once you get there, you'd be thrilled to look out and see those vistas. And all the pain would sort of melt away because of what you got at the top. And guys, the truth is, whatever walking with integrity before God and the world requires of us here, when you see the Lord face to face, those those bruises and those bumps from along the way, the things it costs you in this life and in this world and in this time, they'll melt away. You'll be glad that you walk blamelessly and with integrity. You won't have any regrets about that whatsoever. God's invited us to this walk. And it is more like, a hike up a tall mountain. He's foot the bill. We're not paying our way, but it still requires everything of us. Let's pray. Father, when you appeared to Abraham, he fell before you in fear and reverence. Lord, help us to take some of that same attitude for ourselves today to acknowledge who you are, your greatness, your holiness, that you are totally unlike anyone and anything else. Lord, that there's nothing in you that is less than it should be. And Father, as those who have come into a saving relationship with you through what your Son has done for us, help us to aspire with Father Abraham to live up to this high call that's required of those who know you personally, who are in that relationship with you. Lord, for those who are not yet in that relationship, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work to bring about faith in Christ, to receive the free gift offered us at Christ's cost. Father, thanks for loving us so fully. Thanks for committing your plans to your own goodwill and power. Thanks that you will accomplish all your good purposes in us and through us until the day of our full redemption. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.